1: Our guest today is Benjamin Dancer, and he's the author of a brand new book called Patriot Run. He's also a member of the Colorado EMP Task Force on National and Homeland Security. And today, our topic is the vulnerability of our power grid. In fact, yesterday when I launched Google Chrome uh, to get my day started on the Internet, I saw that it was uh, National Cybersecurity Month. I'm not sure how to celebrate that exactly, but um, our... Our topic today is certainly in line with that. This is a sub- subject we've been hearing somewhat about even in the presidential debates and so I'm excited to have Benjamin on the show to talk about the particulars of what it is that's making our power grid so susceptible to cyber attack and maybe some of the solutions that we should be looking to. So welcome to Go Green Radio Benjamin and congratulations on your new book Patriar- Patriarch Run. I'm sorry, Patriarch Run. That's how you say it. <laughs> welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. It's really good to be here, Jill.
1: Well, it's great to have you on the show. And though your book is a work of fiction, it illuminates a very real threat for everyday Americans. And of course, that is the vulnerability of our power grid. I'd love to know what inspired you to write a story with this as the this issue of of the vulnerability of our power grid at the epicenter of the book.
2: Right. Well, I started wanting to tell a story about two types of fathers. I'm a sucker for a father story. Mm -hmm. So I created a father who sacrifices his family for his mission and a father who sacrifices himself for his son because I think that's the spectrum on which all of us have to decide what type of parent we want to be. And then I needed a plot device to, to flesh all that out So I went looking for what was my bad guy going to do. I wanted the thriller to reach men, and I know what type of stories men like to read. And uh, as I did my research, I ran into the EMP Commission Report. It was published in 2008, a congressional report. And I read that document, and I was just stunned. It seemed to me like it was... like. Uh, something people with tinfoil hats would discuss. And and as I got deeper into it, I, I came to realize the credibility of the authors of that congressional report. And there was no greater catastrophe I could invent. As a writer, I couldn't think of anything better than that factual situation. And so I adopted that as as the plot, the bad guy uh, was going to use the grid in, order, in his attempt to, to cull to reduce the human population.
1: You know what's funny? There's a movie coming out uh, with Tom Hanks in it where mm-hmm. uh, this issue of culling the, the population issue is right uh, front and center in the the plot line of that movie that's coming out. Uh, It's a very uh, timely issue, and I think it's on a lot of people's mind. It has been, you know, for a few years um, since we reached the seven billion mark of human population, and so it's a really interesting topic. But let's, let's shift to the vulnerabilities of the grid, and as I mentioned in the intro, you serve on the Colorado... EMP Task Force on National and Homeland Security, and I would love for you to talk to us about the work of this task force and your specific role.
2: Yeah, well, I'll also tell you the story of how I got on it because I think it helps illustrate all that. When I finished writing the novel, I it was very important to me to get the the facts right to be realistic. That's just one of the things I appreciate about good writing, and that's who I want to be, so I sent the story to the authors of that EMP commission report, and I asked them if they'd be willing to look at it and and tell me if I got it right or or make suggestions if if I made errors, and a number of those authors were very generous, and uh, they gave me that time, and they were thrilled to, to see the story that I had done my homework, and they wrote very enthusiastic endorsements of the book, and those can be seen at my website, and that started a relationship. Dr. Peter Pry was one of those people. He uh, is the executive director of the EMP task force, and through that relationship with him, I, I became more and more alarmed about how serious this issue is. I have three young kids. Oldest is 16, youngest is 9, and I don't want them to live in the potential world that we'll start talking about in a few minutes. And I just started taking the threat very seriously, as does everybody who learns about it. As soon as you understand the issue, you start to care. And so I started giving my time to that task force, and now uh, I work on behalf of the task force to raise awareness. We're a congressional advisory group. So, um when Congress wants to know how to best handle the issue, they come to us and, and they ask for advice because of the experts on our task force. And my particular role is to do a little what I'm doing right now, talking to our audience and those listening to us right now, because it's a underreported existential threat and and our point of view is that, as Americans understand this and when we learn the reality of this situation'll we'll be we'll demand a solution and right. i don't th- I don't think the uh, politicians will move until the people move mm-hmm. so th- that would be my role is to, to to raise awareness and talk to people about the issue
1: well and let's dive right in I think in order for our people to really understand um, this threat, they need to also have an appreciation for the vernacular um, and some of the key terms. So, I'd like to go over a couple of them that I think will be important in this discussion. And let's start with EMP. What is an EMP and how might it occur?
2: It's an electromagnetic pulse. Uh, It it occurs naturally and it can be human-made. So... um, For example, the sun produces these, uh, lightning produces them, a nuclear explosion would produce it, and you can produce it in other ways.
1: Right. And what about an HEMP? What are the likely sources of of one of those, and how would its impact differ from an EMP?
2: So the EMP would be a really broad term referring to um, an electromagnetic pulse in in its many, many forms, either natural or human-made. An HEMP is specifically talking, the H stands for high altitude. So at this point, we're talking about a nuclear EMP. So this would be uh, a nuclear warhead specially designed, rather than to create blast and great amounts of radiation like we traditionally think of a nuclear warhead, it would generate a very intense amount of gamma rays. And those gamma rays would move out in a spherical pattern from the detonation, and any unprotected electronics within line of sight could be destroyed. So the reason why it would be attractive for a person to use a high-altitude EMP and HEMP would be because it, the higher you are, the, the greater your line of sight. In other mm-hmm. words, mm-hmm. A, a detonation above the center of the country, think Kansas, at about the altitude of the International Space Station... Yeah. Would include the entire continental United States within line of sight. So all electronics on the surface of the country, the 48 states, would be at risk.
1: Wow, that's frightening. And what about E1 and E3 waves? Talk to us about how they might occur and how they differ.
2: Yeah. So maybe the simplest way to understand there's, there's three types of waves: 1, 2, and 3, E1, 2, and 3. E1 is nanoseconds, it's very, very fast. E2 is milliseconds, it's fast, and E3 lasts a few seconds, so we would say it's quick, I guess. Um, the These are, um, when, when you have a pulse from a nuclear EMP, you're gonna get all three types of waves. The E1's more powerful than lightning, And it can't be stopped or protected against by the types of devices we use to protect uh, our infrastructure from lightning. The E2 is as powerful as lightning, and the E3 has more energy than lightning would, and it comes a little bit slower. But what happens when you have all three of these pulses working synchronistically? They propagate in three waves, and their damaging effects are dynamic and mutually reinforcing. So it makes it a very difficult thing to protect against because of of those three types of waves. Mm -hmm.
1: So help us understand this. Do EMPs do permanent damage to the grid and its components, or or would we be talking about a short-term outage? Help us understand the actual destructive force um, and impact that these EMPs have.
2: Okay, so there's a wide, wide range. We'll go worst-case scenario and then know that it could be anything less than that, Mm -hmm. Uh, depending on how uh, we're going to assume an attack for the scenarios we're talking about now, but there are natural EMPs, and we'll get into that in a little bit. So a worst-case attack would look very similar to what we just spoke about. We would take the HEMP detonated high in the atmosphere over the center of the country, So beginning with satellites, any unprotected satellites within line of sight are lost, aircraft are lost, and then any unprotected electronics on the surface of the continental United States would be at risk to being damaged. The thing to focus on, I think, for our listeners are the large transformers of the power grid. A lot of critical infrastructure would be damaged, including your devices, your computers, your automobile, all of that. Those amount to inconveniences compared to what we're going to talk about with the grid. So these large transformers, there are about 2,100 of them in the country. They're the size of a single-story garage, and they're old. They've been, mm-hmm. uh, the, the grid has uh, evolved over a hundred years, and, and so many of these units are 50, 60 years old, and they're all handcrafted. There are only a few facilities in the world who make these, and today, when everything's working perfectly, if we were to put in an order for a new one, it would take about a year to two years to fulfill that order. Wow. They are very complicated machines, very difficult to be built correctly, and 11 out of 13 of them are built to different specs. And so those specifications are fairly lost to history. We can reverse engineer them, but, but that's hard to do in an emergency. So these units, many of them, would be destroyed in an event like this. That would mean they would catch on fire. There would be explosions and your Listeners can go to my website, benjamindancer.com, and see videos and photographs of this. It's quite dramatic. It's quite a light show when they go. Mm -hmm. So when those transformers go down, the grid goes down. And the grid is built in such a way that it's susceptible to cascading failures. We're all familiar with tree branches taking down a line, and then you have a cascading problem that can go hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles. Right. So the whole grid goes down when the transformers go down, and that puts us in a pretty bad situation. Um, and we can get into this now or a little bit later, uh, depending on how you want to handle it. But the our life support system in America is dependent on the grid. I'm talking about food right. and water.
1: Exactly, and that's actually something I want to cover in detail as we come back from a quick commercial break, uh, because I want to talk about what what something like this, an event like this, would mean to everyday Americans. So don't go away, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll have much, much more with Benjamin Dancer right after this.
3: conservation starts with us learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in into our wild world with host ellie weiss our show centers on africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife ecology and ourselves however we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home and most importantly we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards By featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers, listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And in case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Benjamin Dancer. He is the author of a brand new fiction uh, book. It's called Patriarch Run. But the subject matter is something that is very technical and very, very real world. He's also a member of the Colorado EMP Task Force on National and Homeland Security. And he's kind of the Tom Clancy of this of this uh, world, you know, where Tom Clancy wrote books that were so very accurate about military issues, um, this book, Patriarch Run, has been endorsed by leading uh, thought leaders and experts in the field of the vulnerability of our nation's power grid. And we were just talking before the break with Benjamin about um, the kind of damage that EMPs could do to the grid and its components. And I wanted to give you a chance to finish what you were, what you were talking about, Benjamin. So pick up where we left off.
2: Okay. So if these large transformers are destroyed, the short version of the story is this society will collapse, starve to death, mass casualties, before the grid could be fixed. So you asked uh, how serious is it of a threat. In a worst-case scenario, it's an existential threat. Dr. Peter Pry estimates 90% casualties in America in a worst-case scenario. And then there's every threat less than that. So there are lots and lots of ways to to hurt uh, our country with an EMP attack. And so you can have anything from the loss of the country to... To, to anything smaller. Mhm.
1: Well, and on your website, which I'll remind our listeners is www.benjamindancer.com, you know, you talked about this in the last segment that you know, when you were preparing for this novel, you read a report for Congress, the report of the Commission to Assess the Threat to the United States from Electromagnetic Pulse, or EMP, attack, and that it was the scariest thing you've ever read. Talk to us about some of the details of that report that really grabbed your attention and created the, the, the storyline for this book.
2: Well, the biggest takeaway... Is the intersection between the population size and this threat, and just to put context to that, a hundred years ago, there were seventy six million Americans about today there are about three hundred and twenty five million Americans. you couldn't commit mass murder a hundred years ago by turning off the lights because food was grown outside the urban centers, and to use a modern term, most people ate locally so Your grandma and my grandma might have lived a good part of their life without electricity just fine. Fast Mm -hmm. forward to today, there are 325 million of us, and many of our urban centers have outstripped the carrying capacities of their surrounding landscapes. As a consequence, food and basic goods are shipped over very long supply lines. Those are often global, and all of them depend on refined fuels which are manufactured with electricity. So the huge aha for me in reading that book was that we have unwittingly staked our lives to the power grid. We absolutely are dependent on electricity for our basic survival. And that just was like a lightning bolt because it's something you take for granted. I think most of our listeners expect the lights to come on, and it's really hard to make the connection to my food supply to electricity. Mm-hmm. So one of the things the EMP commission report made really concrete was that population issue To You know, 100 years ago, there were only about two billion people on the planet. Fast forward to today, there are about 7.5 billion people Mm-hmm. and how is it we that we increase the earth's carrying capacity the answer is electricity so electricity has brought on several key technologies that have allowed us to increase our carrying capacity those are fertilizers came online in the 1940s pesticides mechanical irrigation we talked about refined fuels so we need that for our farm machinery we need that for transportation But even things like our infrastructures for clean drinking water, our infrastructures for sanitation, being able to flush the toilet, those are dependent on electricity, advanced medical care. All those things I just listed, if the grid went down, would be lost. So we'd be stuck in a situation where we would be back to pre-electrical yields in food But we'd have this huge population, and you just couldn't feed them all. You couldn't get them all clean water. And that was the takeaway, that um, my life and your life and my kids' lives are dependent on that power being constant and reliable and widespread.
1: Mm-hmm. And I you know I want to emphasize that this isn't just a theoretical threat there have actually been attempts to cause damage to the grid um, and I'd like for you to talk to our listeners about what happened at the Metcalf station in California just three years ago and I I remember reading a column that Peggy Noonan who's a former speechwriter for President Reagan wrote about that that event and she was, significantly alarmed, to say the least. Talk to us about what happened in that situation.
2: So um, there are four mechanisms of destruction worth note on how we could lose our grid. We've talked about an EMP attack. We'll talk about a cyber attack in a minute. We're about to right now get into mechanical sabotage. And then the final mechanism is through the sun and natural causes. So It would be very easy for a team of people to do great damage to the power grid, and Metcalf is is the shining example of what that looks like. Shining might not be the the best word, as that's kind of a positive phrase. Mm -hmm. But what these people did is they used AK-47s to attack a substation in the Bay Area, and they punctured the oil tanks of these large transformers we were talking about earlier, bleeding the oil, overheating the unit, and you can see pictures of these things on fire and exploding and all that's on my website if, if you if you want to look at that. And they caused millions and millions and millions of dollars damage. There are a lot more effective ways of sabotaging the grid than high powered rifles. But I don't think those are details we should get into on the air.
1: No that's kidding a-
2: it's a really good example of how a small group of people, if they were coordinated, could do massive damage to the country.
1: Mm-hmm. And has that case scenario changed anything uh, in terms of security protocols around substations?
2: It did, and but not enough. So the EMP Commission report was published in 2008. And it has a series of recommendations we'll get into later that essentially have been ignored. The event that we're talking about now was a wake-up call to people. Everybody knows the truth of this. There's nobody that's denying that this is uh, a real threat. The the problem is that uh, the stakeholders are so vast and numerous, it's hard to get a coordinated approach to take care of it. So there have been more fencing, higher fences, things like that to, to protect these stations. The most critical ones have guards. Um, a friend told me he visited one of these uh, not long ago, and the guard was unarmed, and he was by himself. And um, this person happens to be an expert on the issue, and he described how easy it would be for him without the guard knowing to take down that whole substation. Mm-hmm. So ha- have we moved in a direction toward protection? Yes. Is its it, <laughs> is it enough?
1: No. Wow. And, well, and, you know, I mean, with drones, you know, entering the equation in the last few years, um, you know, you wouldn't even have to have people standing on the ground with AK-47s to do that yeah. either. So, yes. uh, wow. And,
2: and, and so our enemies know this. It's in, you know, it's in our war plans. It's in their war plans. They know that this is the most effective way to, to cripple a country, Uh, ISIS knows this, you know, it's in their literature, they talk about it, and moreover, just crazy people. Crazy people are aware of this threat, and it it wouldn't take an organization, you know, one guy or a handful of people who just wanted to be disastrous, could Mm -hmm. take it on themselves to do it.
1: Well, and I think it's also important to underscore the fact that damage to our power grid could happen even without any of these nefarious characters. Um, Talk to us about the Carrington event and what could happen to civilization if a similar event occurred today.
2: So now we're talking about natural causes, and it's so important to be aware of this because when I talk to people, people on the right, people who are kind of hawkish, are really worried about attack scenarios, and there are realistic ones that we've just discussed. People on the left tend to be more concerned about natural causes and that's what we're getting into now. The Sun produces, uh, it ejects plasma from its corona on a regular basis. When a large coronal mass ejection is directed at the Earth, it interferes with the Earth's magnetic field. This happened in 1859. Richard Carrington, whom the events named after, was looking through his telescope. He's a British astronomer and he's sketching these sunspots. You can see them on my website. And as he's looking through the telescope, he sees the solar surface, the surface of the sun, brighten. No human being had ever witnessed that before. The next day, when that coronal mass ejection hit Earth, the aurora borealis was seen all the way down almost to the equator. And the electrical infrastructure of the day was totally destroyed. Fortunately for you and me and our ancestors, civilization had not yet de- evolved to depend on that electrical infrastructure. It was just the telegraph system. And worldwide, it collapsed. Telegraph offices caught on fire. And uh, we now know that that was a coronal mass ejection. NASA published on its website a paper that estimates the probability of this happening at about 12% per decade, a coronal mass ejection large enough to take down the whole grid. They happen on a very regular basis on a smaller scale. We've seen many of them throughout the last century, and they've crippled parts of power grids all over the world, but they've all been small events. A -hmm. large event would uh, it would be an event we, we probably wouldn't be able to recover from for for the reasons we went into earlier.
1: Wow. That's really something. And, and we'll get into what might be done about that and what, what our uh, public policymakers should be doing to protect the grid um, in just a moment. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have so much more to discuss with Benjamin Dancer. So please don't go away, folks. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break.
3: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss
1: Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. I appreciate all of our listeners tuning in every week. And I want to remind everybody that Go Green Radio is an offshoot of a much larger organization. In 2002, I formed a nonprofit called the Go Green Initiative, and it's the largest environmental education program in the world, actually. Uh, We operate in schools in all 50 U.S. states and in 73 countries around the world. And if you'd like more information on that or you'd like to be part of the cause, you can go to www.gogreeninitiative.org to find out more. We are on today with Benjamin Dancer and we're talking about both the importance of our power grid—we talk about energy a lot on Go Green Radio—but even more importantly, the vulnerability uh, that we that we have in terms of what would happen if there were either an attack or by natural causes our power grid went down. And actually, uh, there's a video that was produced by a Colorado-based news station that's on the website. For the organization that Benjamin uh, is representing, and he's also uh, written a book about EMPs, and it's called Patriarch Run. But the Colorado EMP Task Force on National and Homeland Security has this video, and it does a great job of enumerating the many ways that everyday Americans would be impacted by widespread damage to our power grid. Benjamin, talk to us about some of the critical systems and infrastructure that would go down and, and what that would do to our lives lives.
2: Okay, so the power grid is the life support of all the other infrastructures that support us. So let's start with food. Your grocery store has about a three-day supply of food in a crisis that would get much shorter as there'd be a run on the grocery store. And then the first thing to think about is what are you going to do after that food is gone? How will you eat? Uh, so um, we'll be in a situation um where the food, there's no transportation. You can't refine fuels. You got the fuel that's left in your gas tank, so your travel is quite limited. You have no running water. Your, the water works on uh, pumps that are fueled by electricity. You have no sanitation. Once again, that toilet flushes with water and there are pumps that move the waste through the sewage system. If you're downhill from, um, from a residential area, chances are your basement will fill with other people's sewage since that won't be pumped away. So you're in a situation with you and your family where you have no clean water, you uh, aren't able to go to the bathroom, you have no toilet, and so you've got to think about how you're going to handle your waste without getting your family sick. We assume that uh, diseases vanquished by modern sanitation will reappear, and that will... Cause a those will cause a, a good bulk of the initial casualties. Those types of diseases. So no food, no water, no sanitation, no transportation. And if you let your imagination just play with those four concepts for a minute, and if you live in a large urban center, what you're talking about is an apocalypse. I know that I strive to be an ethical person. And I know myself well enough to know that if my kids were starving, my ethics might evolve in a situation like that. Mm-hmm. And so society would quickly devolve into a collapse. We've seen examples of this in disasters like Hurricane Katrina. Um, we've, we've, we've seen um, micro... Uh, of, of this catastrophe. But if there was nobody to come to your aid, in Katrina's example, the rest of the country was able to come to that city's aid, and it was still a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. But if the rescuer is having the same trouble you're having, there there is no hero that's going to come get you out of this.
1: Right. Well, and you mentioned, you know, that we, re- we rely on um, refining operations for fuel that are powered by electricity, but, you know, we have got to think about everyday people. You can't run a gas pump. Even if there were, you know, some fuel underground in the the tanks underneath gas stations, you can't pump it out and into your car um, without electricity.
2: You can't. So So there's no communication. Yeah, it's it's a disaster.
1: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And Now, now... Go right ahead, I was just Benjamin. going to mention two other catastrophes that really alarm me because they're dramatic. If the grid were to shut down without any warning, our industrial um, factories, many of them would explode. So if we remember Bhopal, India, where that chemical plant had an explosion and thousands of people were poisoned by the air, that would be happening all over America and our nuclear facilities. They depend on uh, electricity to run their cooling pumps to keep the spent fuel cool. If we re- if we remember Fukushima, yeah, what happened there is they didn't have any power to run the cooling pumps, and so there was a meltdown in, in that core, and that's what caused that catastrophe. There are about a hundred facilities like that in America that, without diesel fuel to run their generators, we would have Fukushimas all over the country.
1: Whoa. Gosh, that's an extrapolation I hadn't even considered. And everybody thinks, you know, I I remember, you know, when Hurricane Sandy hit, and we heard, you know, a lot of stories about what was going on, um, you know, in the hospitals in Manhattan, and how, you know, they had backup generators, but they were in the basement, so they were flooded and they didn't work but even if they had generators at the top floor uh, of a hospital or you know some other institution when they run out of fuel you know the liquid fuel that keeps the generators going um, if you can't pump any of that you know additional fuel out of the tanks because there's no electricity whatever you've got on site is it that's it that's it, it.
2: So it's a really, it's the scariest situation we could sit down and imagine, and I think we need to do our utmost to make sure that nobody has to live through what we're talking about.
1: Well, according to the experts that you work with, Benjamin, what should the government be doing about these threats? What's the solution?
2: The EMP Commission report listed a series of recommendations that unfortunately, um None of them have been done. So I'll read a couple of them to us. Um, we need to protect critical components of the grid. So we talked about the transformers. There are other vulnerable components, and we know how to protect these. You can use shielding so that the pulse can't uh, penetrate a device, and you can also install, for lack of a better term, circuit breakers on a, on a very robust scale that would keep, uh, units from being overheated. Mm-hmm. Um, we should be monitoring the grid for, for mm-hmm. these types of things so that we're aware of them when they happen. Because of the cascading failures, if you're not, if you're not aware instantly of a problem, the problem gets much worse than it needs to be. There is no plan for recovery. So we got a Thanks. plan for hurricanes. We got a plan for earthquakes. We've got to plan for all kinds of disasters. There is no plan in place for an incident like we're talking about. Yes. We should be red teaming. That means we have groups of really smart people probing our vulnerabilities and showing us how it is we are vulnerable. We should define federal responsibilities. That hasn't even been done. So we're talking about an intersection between the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, all these independently owned investors, these independently owned utilities, all over the country. So the the issue is very, very complex, and nobody's taken ownership of of whose responsibility is it. Mm-hmm. And then we should also do more research to understand the effects and uh, cost-effective solutions to this problem. Hmm.
1: And, and is there a role for local or state governments that can take action in, the, you know, in yeah. lieu of the lack of leadership from the federal government? What might oh, that yes. look like?
2: So we've kind of been talking about worst case scenario. And in, a, in, a, in an event like what we're talking about, I don't know that there is much you can do after the fact but survive but let's not assume it's always going to be worst case. Let's let's look at smaller incidents like a Katrina size incident or maybe a Katrina times 10 or 15, you know, where where there's still hope that uh, civilization will survive, but mm-hmm. you got to last a year or a month. We um you know, at at this point in the conversation, I should point out that I think the right and the left have a lot to learn from each other and I never I don't see myself as belonging to one team or the other because I see truth on both sides and I want to just talk about a little bit of the mentality I often hear talked about on the right or at least more often than I do on the left and that would be this concept of resilience that um, do they have a mentality I think where their first responsibility to take care of themselves is them, their small community and that type of um, I don't know, uh, independent mindset where they see themselves as, if there's a problem, I've got to handle it. And I'm speaking in really broad generalities, and I really hope I'm not offending our audience right now, but it's been my experience that the left sometimes expects somebody else to come in and and handle that, Um, you know, if if I can paint that broad of a brush. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we would all do well to think through these issues and have small communities that are more prepared to be self-sufficient and not expect somebody else to come in and and lift us out of the problem, at least not for a while. That could be weeks, months. And so if we kind of had more of that mindset, if we talked in our neighborhoods and our municipalities and our local governments and started planning for these types of events Mm-hmm. then communities who do that will be much better prepared. They'll have communication networks in place. They'll have a plan in place. And they're more, much more likely to avoid a collapse of society, and, and they might be able to last through a short-term situation like what we're discussing.
1: Yes. Well said, Benjamin. And on that, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some other solutions that might help create some resilience. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our topic today has been the vulnerability of our existing power grid and some of the things that um, could harm the grid and then subsequently harm our civilization. Now, It's Go Green Radio. So you had to know that at some point, if we're talking about energy, I was going to bring it back to renewable energy. (laughs) And so that's what we're going to talk about in this segment. You know, after Hurricane Sandy, when there were so many people who had no electricity in their homes for weeks, um, we saw that people who had solar panels on their roofs were able to, uh, to electrify their homes. And so, Benjamin, I would love for you to talk about how Renewable energy and distributed generation of power um, might have a positive impact on the resilience of our grid and and maybe reduce its vulnerability
2: such a good opportunity here so um, man uh, so this is, this is where we need to go with this. first of all, the most sustainable way to handle this would be to to go back to a population size that we had one hundred years ago where if the grid went down, you could still feed everybody. Uh, if that's not going to happen, then we need to think about, if we're going to choose to be dependent on a power grid for our survival, we better make sure it's robust enough to handle the natural events of the sun and, and, and the other events we've talked about. So right now we're all tied into this large grid, this massive thing And we would be more secure if we could figure out how to generate electricity at points of use. Now, you still have to be smart about that. You still have cyber threats. You still have solar threats. There's this concept of super-sustainability. Super-sustainability solves climate change and the threat to the grid with the same action. So... Sustainability, renewable energy, uh, resolves climate change if we, if we use fewer fossil fuels, but you're still vulnerable to solar threats to attack. Super sustainability makes sure that your infrastructure is hardened from the types of things we've been talking about so that if you've got solar panels on your roof and there's a coronal mass ejection, you, that you're still okay. You don't lose your lights. There's this really, really interesting proposal by Sandy McDonald. He ran the NOAA Laboratory in Boulder. He retired very recently. And right before he retired, he asked a very simple question. What's the most cost-effective way to run the country? He, created, he had his research team create a computer model to explore that, and the answer was 80% renewable energy, 20% fossil fuel. That's the most cost-effective way to do it. The paper is published in the journal Nature Climate Change, if anybody wants to read it. I've written a lot about it on my website, benjamindancer.com. And what Sandy essentially does in his proposal is he shows us how to get to 80% renewables within 15 years with today's technology, no battery backup, no storage, and To do that, you have to ramp up generation. You have to bring up solar and wind to the scale of weather. Because he directed the the NOAA laboratory, he had access to high-resolution weather data that no other researcher had ever employed before, and he was able to show exactly how to do that. There's always wind blowing somewhere. Mm -hmm. However, to make this work... You have to redesign the way electricity is transmitted in America because today you can't move electrons from Arizona to New York City, not on our current transmission line. They just don't go that far. You have Mm -hmm. to change it from AC to DC in order to be able to do this. And here's what's really interesting. When you do that, you can harden the system against threats that we're discussing today. In other words, what Sandy's proposing is that we kill two birds with one stone, we solve climate change, we solve this threat to our power grid, and we do it within 15 years, and, and it's a more cost-effective way to power the country than the way we're doing it now. I think that type of dialogue, whether or not be, whether or not it be the right answer, is what we need to be talking about because we're taking the left and we're taking the right, and we're working together to solve two real problems, and we need each other to do it. And so it excites me to, to think about that proposal.
1: I'm wondering how the nation's utility companies are responding to ideas like that, because you know, distributed generation is contrary to the way that You know, we do things today.
2: It's an existential threat to the way they do business. They're not going to take kindly to it. And if our readers want to know more about that, on my blog, I'll point to two um, articles you can read on my blog. One is called Obstacles uh, um, Obstacles to Securing Our Critical Infrastructure, Part 1 and 2. It's a conversation from two stakeholders. One's an advocacy group. Uh, trying to make a more resilient grid and the other is the power industry and they're writing back and forth, uh, talking about these issues. And the other blog post, why isn't more being done to protect the grid? Uh, it goes into the the liability avoidance games the power industry is playing. So this is a very, very tough list because there are entrenched industry interests and so we're talking about a, a pretty big change to, to 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 their industry.
1: Well, and we're simultaneously talking about a big change to the fossil fuel industry as well, yes. um, because this solution, you know, includes renewable energy versus you know energy from fossil fuels, and so yes. that's two pretty big, powerful, wealthy uh, so here's,
2: interests. Here's the hope. We're talking about a national security threat that's unprecedented in the history of civilization. Our population's so big, we have to have the grid or we can't feed ourselves. And if the whole country would awaken to that reality, we would have enough momentum to change the way this is done. And of course, when we, when, as, we, as we make these changes, we'd also want to solve climate change. So there's kind of a, a synchronicity of two very large threats, climate change and this grid, and that's the only way you're going to overcome the entrenched interest that we're talking about now.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I want to make sure that I remind our listeners that you have a book out, Patriarch Run, and it deals with much of what we've discussed today in a fictional but but highly realistic story that I found very well written and impossible to put down. It was really, really good. Um, I want to make sure we give you time to give our listeners a synopsis of the book and tell them where they can buy a copy.
2: Thank you for saying that. So you can go to my website or you can go to Amazon.com or any online retailer and you can pick up that book. It's essentially a story about fathers. We opened with that. I really wanted to tell a story about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a son, what it means to be a father. The plot works like this. The bad guy wants to solve the population problem by committing mass murder on a scale never seen before in human history by taking down the grid. And so he has to be stopped. But the heart and soul of the story is what does it mean to be a human being? And it's packaged as a thriller, it's exciting, and it's thoughtful, and it's deep. And and uh, if you read the reviews on Amazon, what I'm most proud of is when people talk about the depth of the characters and the story and and how meaningful those aspects are. And then I also wanted to deal with all the themes we've talked about today because I think they're important. And not only are they a plot device, but there are things we need to wake ourselves up to so that we we can have a better future.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I so appreciate having you on the show today, Benjamin, and I appreciate your book. I mean, I've always been, like I mentioned earlier, a Tom Clancy fan. I'm a former naval officer, and so uh, that genre, uh, your book seems so familiar to me, you know, in that type of uh, Mm -hmm. storytelling, and I loved it. So I really encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Patriarch Run. You know, folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. I really enjoyed having you all with us today. Until we meet again, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.